You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast today is Caroline Rose. Caroline is a senior analyst and head of the Power Vacuums program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Uh, Before that, she was at Geopolitical Futures. Uh, She and I actually never crossed paths at at GPF. She got there after I had already left, but was happy to get a chance to invite her on the program. Um, Not only happy, uh, extremely appreciative because we had a whole other episode uh, planned and then our guest had some technical difficulties and Caroline, despite uh, being having an international flight later in the day of this recording uh, was good enough to pinch hit and come in and talk about some of the work that she's been doing on the Middle East at New Lines on relatively short notice. So Caroline, thank you so much for, for making some time for me and for our listeners. It's greatly appreciated and we hope to have you back on soon. Um, listeners, that episode that I talked about, it will be coming soon um, and I'm really excited about it, but I won't say anything else about it for now. Otherwise, Uh, Before we get to Caroline, just your usual reminders to share, rate the podcast, all that kind of good stuff. Check us out at perchperspectives.com. You can find our free newsletter or the LATAM Politic newsletter if you're interested in that. You can also write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you would like to hear more about the services that we offer. If you have any comments about this, I'm reading everything that's coming through. Or if you just have any thoughts on your mind that you want to share and want someone to listen to. Other than that, uh, it's beautiful October weather here in the United States. I hope that all of you are staying safe and staying well. Um, and we'll see you out there. Cheers. All right, Caroline, I have no idea if this is going to record, listeners. Uh, if it does, it's a minor miracle. We've been troubleshooting now <laughs> for almost as long as we're probably going to talk. Thank you for, for your stamina and sticking with us, Caroline. It's good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. I appreciate it. And uh, sorry about the audio issues. It's all good. It's not your fault. Zencaster, this is on you guys. Need to figure some stuff out. Um, so let's talk about the most stable region in the world with Caroline. The Middle East, of course, is what I'm speaking about. Um, Caroline, you look at the Middle East from a lot of different levels. Um, and I know that you have some things that you've been focusing on in particular. But before we get to them, I just wanted to ask, what do you think is the most important thing happening in the Middle East right now that people are talking about or not talking about sort of when you're looking at it from a macro perspective, what is the most important thing moving things on the ground throughout the region today on Friday, October the 8th? So the Middle East right now is a really fascinating region to watch just because uh, we're starting to see this really interesting transition from a dependency on U.S. security and military assistance in the region to uh, this very interesting dynamic and and coalition that is emerging in the region uh, between both the former rivals and adversaries uh, and then existing partners there. And so the United States has started the withdrawal process in Iraq. Um, It has indicated or signaled uh, drawdown in Syria. And we've already started to see the removal of uh, Patriot uh, defense missile systems in the Gulf. Uh, which is quite interesting. And while this has been happening, uh, an interesting shifting alliance system in the Middle East to uh, serve as kind of an alternative de facto security framework uh, to stave Iran and stave other other threats in the region. So I think that definitely is the most interesting and and the biggest shift I'm I'm starting to see in the region. 
Uh, and then, of course, with that, it, it comes with a lot of, you know, sub topics and sub issues uh, that the United States and, and other countries should be concerned about. For example, normalization with the Assad regime, um, you know, this this uh, rapprochement with Turkey and, uh, you know, kind of the, the undertones of the existing uh, Arab and uh, Israeli uh, peace accords, the Abram uh, agreement. So I think that that, you know, all ties into this new security framework that is emerging in the Middle East, which has great, great, uh, you know, some benefits, but then also some really troubling aspects to it as well. Remarkable that it's 2021 and we're still talking about Bashar al-Assad. I did not have yeah. that on my on my bingo card in 2011. when <laughs> Things went crazy there. Um, before we dive into some of the specific stuff, do you feel that, or or I shouldn't say, do you feel? Do you assess that anyone is moving into the vacuum? You you talked about the United States withdrawing from the region. I think that's in part strategic. In part, it's just the United States doesn't need the energy from the region region as much as it used to. Um, do you see the region balancing against itself and regional powers sort of um, carving out a space for their own regional influence, or do you or do you think that the Asian powers that are becoming more and more dependent on Middle Eastern oil and Middle Eastern natural gas increasingly. So I'm thinking about China, Japan, even India, South Korea, uh, all of them are running around there and all of them have interest there. Do you see them replacing some of that U.S. influence or it's really just the Middle East is finally being left to stew in its own juices? Great question. And, uh, you know, this is this is a really interesting uh, topic. And I think a lot of, of policymakers and analysts have, have thought about this. And I think it's important to think uh, of the Middle East so-called vacuum um, as a series of different um, ungoverned spaces and uh, spaces to be contested between regional and great powers, not just one, uh, just because the United States so far has filled a number of gaps, the security gap, um, you know, of course, military assistance, security assistance, uh, a degree of, you know, advisory capacity, uh, operational assistance aid, humanitarian aid, education, uh, and then, of course, you know, guidance in terms of, you know, judicial systems, governance, uh, and, 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 and human rights, uh, you know, things like that. And so there are these different spaces. And of course, I can't forget this, you know, the economic assistance as well. Um, so knowing that the, there are a number of different spaces for influence, I think that, yes, you're going to see a degree of great power interest. Uh, Russia is already active in Syria. Russia, of course, wants to increase its influence in the Mediterranean. But at the same time, it has a number of constraints, which is why I think that there, uh, you know, when we talk about kind of the uh, security landscape in the Middle East after U.S. withdrawal, everyone loves to jump to Russia and China, whereas I think it's far more complicated than that. Um, there are a lot of nuances here. And the first thing is that Russia has a lot of constraints in Syria already. Um, there is a degree of domestic backlash against some of these foreign commitments, especially in conflict zones like Syria. And let's be honest, you know, the the immediate vacuums that will exist after U.S. withdrawal, it's going to be Iraq, it's going to be northeast Syria, and it's going to be, um, you know, various areas uh, in the Levant, such as, uh, you know, Lebanon, also in some places in the Gulf. Russia 
has no strategic interest in inheriting those conflict zones. It's, for example, the same reason why in Afghanistan, certainly they want leverage and certainly they want influence, but Russia's not, you know, invading Afghanistan right now to inherit the mess and, and chaos that is persisting there. It's the same, it's the same thing in a number of these, these spaces in the Middle East. In Syria, of course, it's a different dynamic because they already have troops there. They already have this advisory capacity and, um, you know, its its role as a security guarantor for the Assad regime, but it's different. And the same thing, uh, the same case applies for China, um, and even, even more so in the security realm. Uh, China will be certainly seeking spaces for economic influence and for spaces to, you know, of course, expand its Belt and Road Initiative, I think, uh, particularly with, the, you know, building off of its existing relationship and past deal that was arranged with Iran this past year. But at the same time, the Middle East also, there's a lot of great potential and risk for insecurity. It's why that they are reevaluating their current corridor with Pakistan with a lot of insurgent activity. So, you know, I, I, I try and think, you know, people love to jump to, well, well, will China, you know, want to build a, uh, you know, BRI corridor through the Middle East? No, probably not, um, just because of the risk of instability and insurgent groups and, uh, you know, failed economic projects that, that the region, uh, you know, could, could introduce. But certainly they will, they will seek economic influence, they will seek engagement, they will seek leverage and clout. Uh, but on, I think, a more limited level, uh, we, will, we will not see uh, the levels of engagement, the levels of presence uh, with both Russia and China uh, to the degree that we saw with the United States, especially during you know, the years of its counterterrorism missions in the region. Now, yeah, uh, you know, with, with regional powers, Iran, uh, you know, that, that's, that's one of the main actors I see kind of filling this vacuum, uh, especially in the security realm and the political realm. And I think Turkey will certainly try and compete, but uh, you know Turkey, of course, has a lot of economic constraints, um, and and right now there's this kind of uh, this wave of reproachment that uh, I think that might compel it to ally against Iran along with some of its former adversaries. So, yeah. Yeah, makes sense, and I want to I want to dig down into both of those. But before we leave, sort of the the macro situation, I wonder if. Um... If the recent rise in oil prices, which JPM, somebody just sent me a report that, that has them saying that it's even low now and it might go higher, um, it's quite a change from the past couple of years when oil prices seem to be low. And you know that's affected everything from Iran's willingness to negotiate the nuclear deal, from Saudi Arabia's willingness to fund their campaign in Yemen. Um, you know, Turkey's more of an importer, but they've got gas interests in the Eastern Med. Um, it seems to me that these ener energy price fluctuations are kind of a big deal. And if we're going through this sustained, maybe mini, maybe longer period of, of high oil, high, ugh, higher oil prices, higher LNG prices, all that kind of stuff, um, it, does that change the calculus at all? I should have also mentioned Libya is in there as well, and they're hurtling towards maybe elections in December. Hopefully that stuff stays together. So how do you think about how oil prices and energy prices globally in general are affecting some of the dynamics that you just traced out? Well, certainly, I think that, uh, you, you know, when, when you have these higher LNG prices um, and the, the industry in some cases a bit, um, I don't want to say more stable because I think this still is a sector that can vary, especially as um, with the past year, uh, you know, it's, it's really exposed how vulnerable and volatile it can be. So on the same framework, I think 
that it has emboldened a lot of authoritarian behavior because it has made a lot of these countries um, recognize that economic alternatives uh, and, and alternative industries, uh, they don't have to rely on them just as much. Uh, but I also think that it's important to look at, you know, oil prices in conjunction with a lot of other factors that also embolden these countries, uh, embolden their defense, you know, behavior. They embolden, um, you know, their regional and political behavior. And I think that it's also, you know, it's for example, it's, it's deals like the JCPOA, um, it's defense buildup, it's militarization. A lot of these other factors are also influencing, um, you know, how these these countries are trying to reshape the security landscape of the Middle East in the wake of U.S. drawdown and withdrawal. Um, but certainly, oil price, prices, at least uh, in the short term, will be heavily influencing how these alliances are shaped and formed and how they come together. Um, and then also, what kind of leverage these actors have at the negotiating table? I think that's a huge thing. And like you mentioned with Iran. Um, that's why we have seen talks in Vienna stall significantly. Um, also, the fact that Iran feels a bit more emboldened to engage with new actors and new clients with their oil industry. It's why we've seen shipments to the Mediterranean. It's why we've seen, um, you know, Iranian tankers uh, essentially uh, venture beyond, you know, the, the Atlantic. Uh, and, and we've also seen them engage Afghanistan as a potential client for oil, uh, Iranian oil exports as well. So it's, it's an interesting framework to, to, to see how this affects behavior. Yeah. And it, I mean, with Iran, I could argue it both ways. I could see the, the increase in oil prices being a reason to get the JCPOA done so that they can get back into the game economically because yes, they've been able to export in, in some ways, but you know, the, the industry is crippled in Iran unless they have access to Western markets. That's just a fact. Um, so maybe this moves it along for them. Um, on the flip side, maybe they're getting a higher price for the stuff that they're getting through mm -hmm. otherwise. So maybe it, it makes them a little calmer. The Saudis are super interesting from this perspective. I think one of the reasons they've pulled back is because they realized they were burning through cash. If they're suddenly not burning through cash, um, and it's petrodollars again, maybe, uh, I don't know, I, I have to think about that a little bit more. But let's put a pin in that. Um, let's move a little bit more to the West and talk about Turkey, because I know you've been thinking a lot about a lot about Turkey and doing a lot about Turkey. Um, it was great reading some of your recent stuff, and we'll put a link to it, listeners, in the, in the podcast description, because you're really looking at it from a security perspective and a political perspective, especially in the Eastern Med. Um, I can tell you that I've been looking at it more from an economic perspective and watching... Um, in particular, what Erdogan is doing at the monetary level. Um, and I have to confess to you, uh, you know, I'm somebody who, who, doesn't, who doesn't talk about world leaders as if they're stupid or as, as if they're crazy. That usually means I'm not understanding what they're doing. But Erdogan seems like he's lost his mind to me. I don't get what he's doing with interest rates. I don't get how it serves him. I don't understand at all how it's good politically. If anything, it seems to me like he's taking a bazooka to his own political support and hitting and firing. Um, so I, I wanted to say from that perspective, I'm confused about Turkey at the domestic level. Is there more logic in their security affairs? Um, is it also kind of crazy in their security affairs? And how do you think the domestic and the international stuff is talking to each other? I'd love to get your perspective on that. Great question. I also join you in the confusion over you know how Erdogan has approached the uh, very accelerating um, economic collapse uh, within Turkey. 
especially too over the fact that you know there were reports that he received advice over for example you know management with the central bank um you know currency and whatnot and he refused that advice and then also there were reports that uh, a lot of this advice was not even relayed to him in the first place um that came out in, in recent months and then of course he's he's uh purged a lot of these these uh top financial positions and there still has not necessarily been uh, a lot of change um economically in, in turkey because of this so uh, that's that's something certainly to watch. And it's had an impact on the indigenous defense industry, for sure. And as we've seen, too, um, and I don't want to go as, as far as saying that Turkey has moderated its behavior entirely, but, uh, you know, the summer of 2021 looks very different than the summer of 2020, where you saw a lot of these, uh, you know, Turkish uh, vessels and, and tankers uh, and frigates essentially harassing a lot of these uh, uh, Greek um vessels in in the eastern mediterranean and the aegean uh and then not just greek vessels french they were locking onto french frigates they were picking a big fight exactly exactly and so you know there was that high level of tension in the region uh you know in the summer of 2020 and it was fascinating and very concerning to watch as well uh just because of the you know complications and consequences that it would have on the uh you know the nato alliance and for the united states even uh, and then, of course, that high risk of direct conflict. Now you're not seeing that as much. Um, and certainly it's due to some economic constraints. It's also due, I think, in part to the fact that Turkey identified, um, you know, a, the, the Tuna Zone 1 um, discovery of natural gas in the Black Sea. Uh, not to say that that necessarily satisfies their their energy demand till the end of time, but uh, I think that definitely bolstered their confidence levels in the fact that they could, of course, reduce dependency on Russian gas imports. Um, and so the Eastern Mediterranean still, while incredibly important ideologically and from a defense perspective, I think, uh, you know, for the time being, that that definitely boosted confidence levels. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, it's the fact that, uh, you know, the economy has been in such dire straits. And a lot of these uh, 2023 reforms that were promised by Erdogan, uh, you haven't seen a lot of progress on them. While, of course, the defense industry, its indigenous defense industry has mushroomed um, in the past few years, uh, a lot of these reforms have not necessarily, uh, you know, been, been delivered. And in part, that's due to political constraints and then, of course, economic constraints. And so, um, at this, but at the same time, I, I still see a lot of um, lingering tensions, which is why I, especially very recently, have been very vocal about we really do need to observe uh, some of these undertones in the Mediterranean right now, um, particularly this recent Greek-French defense deal. Um, just because while you know Erdogan may not necessarily be, be uh, very vocal about his opposition to this deal. We haven't really heard the kind of rhetoric, again, that we've heard in summer of 2020, in the spring of 2020. But still, uh, you know, this is not being digested in, in Ankara um, very well. And, uh, you know, certainly could always be used as an element to escalate tensions um, and bring us back to where we were last year, certainly. Does that where does that play out? Does that play out in Libya? Does that play out with brinksmanship in the Mediterranean in general? Kind of target for me where we're going to see the manifestation of that of those tensions as you describe them. So, 
in, in trying to game out how this, how tensions in the Mediterranean would play out in 2021, I think that, you know, I, I don't want to be boring and say, oh, it'll be the same, the same kind of, um, you know, pathway that we saw in 2020. But I think that for both Greece and for Turkey, they understand that there are many consequences to direct conflict in the Aegean. Um, so for, for, for that reason, you saw a lot of the brinksmanship policy, the harassment um, in, in many ways, it was sometimes just trailing behind vessels, getting very incredibly close, um, you know, trying to step into, uh, you know, exclusive economic zones for, you know, a few days and then leave, make these big announcements about how they were sending new hydrocarb hydrocarbon drilling vessels into contested waters, redrawing the lines of contested economic, exclusive economic zones, the EEZs in the Mediterranean, things like that, where you, you, you push each other's buttons. Um, and of course, and you on you know the flip side, you see the militarization, you see defense buildup, you see more frigates being you know constructed, you see these bilateral defense agreements, um, and you know you're raising the temperature, and technically you're lowering the threshold for conflict, but still you do have that major constraint of what will NATO do, um, and I think Turkey understands, uh, you know it, it's. It's just the reality that while they are a member of NATO and while the process of militarization and direct conflict could very well paralyze NATO, the United States and especially the EU, they would side with Greece. Um, it would be a very difficult gamble. But at this point, especially after the S-400 issue, uh, if the United States were to take a side, it would be with Greece. Um, and, you know, the EU, I think that that is even more set in stone, although that there is some you know, elements of German resistance. So I think that Turkey understands that. I think also Greece, while certainly, um, you know, while, while they may have a bit more, um, uh, they're a bit more packed to their punch, so to speak, I think that they also, of course, are hesitant of direct conflict because that's just not, um, it's just not necessarily in their interest. But still, it's, it's, it's worth, uh, you know, looking at these events with concern. Um, just because a clash could easily escalate into direct conflict, um, you know, unintentionally. So, um, you know, I think we were very close to seeing that in the summer of 2020. I hope you're right about that. I'm not sure that the EU would do very much more than issue a very, I'm sure, very, very strongly <laughs> worded, but a strongly worded statement. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm in Ankara that I'm thinking that way. But you, you raise a I mean, the first question that comes to my mind after you say that is to put you on the spot and ask, is Turkey in NATO in 2030? Let's just pick a year out of a hat. So there are two ways this could go. Um, unless uh, NATO carries out a, a very thorough like institutional review and reform process where they uh, reform their membership uh, requirements, uh, Turkey is in. Um, they don't have any formal... Um, expulsion process in, in, in NATO. Uh, they have a way to, in many cases, silence their members or uh, in some cases, like apply punitive action, but there's no way to expel members in NATO. There's no formal process. Um, and, you know, that is certainly a, a major flaw for NATO, um, you know, going back to when it was created and when it, when it was established you know, the founders didn't necessarily think about how to expel these these members, especially when they don't not only abide by democratic values set by the alliance, but then also, of course, the fact that, um, you know, their relationships with their with NATO adversaries, such as Russia, 
Um, you know, that that is certainly a point of contention when it comes to Turkey over the S-400 issue. And so, uh, you know, I think that if NATO is not able to reform and amend this, Turkey's in, um, which in some cases, I think, is is a benefit here. And, and I, I do want to put this out there. I think that, you know, I don't think that that sh- should be the desired outcome here, because the fact that Turkey is a NATO member, while it poses many problems for the alliance and has paralyzed the alliance on, on issues in, you know, in, in regarding Eastern European security, um, even things like, uh, you know, annual exercises. I remember that there was an exercise in Poland that was, uh, you know, put on pause uh, when they were deliberating this at a NATO summit in 2019, I believe in December of 2019. Um, NATO, uh, because of the the ongoing issue with Turkey, uh, you know, that was that was stalled. It was paralyzed because of this issue in the Mediterranean. So I think that while that's certainly bad, I think the fact that Turkey being in NATO does give the United States leverage. Um, and there is that dynamic, at least, of trying to balance out, um, you know, ba- balance out tur- Turkey and, of course, moderate its behavior. Um, the United States just needs to be aware of these tools and, and use these, uh, you know, correctly to ensure that they can moderate Turkish behavior. Because um, as soon as you have Turkey out of the alliance, that could isolate Ankara further um, and, of course, push it closer to Russia and, of course, this, um, you know, emerging Chinese and Russian partnership. So I think that, you know, having them in this organization still is to U.S. interests and to U.S. benefit. Uh, we just need to properly use this leverage. Um, we just cannot allow Ankara to paralyze these institutions. And then, of course, then EU countries and look to alternative, uh, you know, sources of, of defense and protection, for example, like the collective European defense community. Um, so, yeah, lots of different dyna- dynamics that, uh, you know, uh, relate to this. Of course, it's a really complex uh, issue. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it's headed that direction to me. I'm, I'd push back a little bit on the notion that Turkey and Russia are going to make common cause or even that Russia and China are on the same page there. I think that's that, that's a little beyond the pale for me. But I do think the Turkey-China relationship is real and there are some mutual interests there. And if you're Turkey... Um, you know, China's far enough away um, and has enough to offer that you might really want to might want to solidify that relationship uh, goes to show you how much the Uyghurs and how much Islam doesn't actually matter to Erdogan at a foreign policy level. It's all just, um, you know, if it happens to be useful for him at a particular moment in time, he uses it. If not, he, he doesn't use it. Um, and I, I know you've done some work on that as well. I, I'm pretty pessimistic about I, th- I think there's a lot of moral grandstanding and self-righteous indignation there about the Uyghurs and what's happening to them. And for the record, listeners, I, it's reprehensible. Um, I'm just, I'm a little too cynical. Like, like of course, this is happening. And like I, all these people who are saying they're doing things and we need to change things, nobody's actually doing anything. There was just something this week that a, that a U.S. company, I forget the name of the company, was was uh, cooperating with the Chinese government to send Uyghurs into South China to make their stuff in their plants there. So um, that's depressing, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Um, you know, my colleagues at New Lines Institute, uh, they came up with a report earlier this year that, um, you know, explored the legal definition of, of genocide and uh, applied it uh, to to what is going on, of course, in the Uyghur community. And it's an exceptional report. Um, and uh, it was conducted by an array of scholars and legal experts on this issue. And, you know, even after that came out, while we have seen some limited progress, there's just so much more to be done. And yes, especially by leaders, you know, in the Muslim community and the lack of 
action and accountability on this issue is incredibly concerning. And you're absolutely right. It's just uh, Turkey certainly applies in this case. Yeah, no, let's let's not go down that rabbit hole. Kamran and I, I think, talked about this on a previous podcast, and we can go back to, to that one because you were mentioning Pakistan. Imran Khan is at the top of the the hypocrisy list there. But let let's not go there. Let's let's stick on to more uplifting things. Uh, Syria, um, Caroline, I I have to confess, I'm I'm, I'm going to say this partly tongue in cheek because um, I obviously care about all this stuff because I'm a nerd. But for listeners who have been hearing about reading about Syria for you know, over 10 years now, we're talking about since the Arab Spring and the Civil War broke out there. Um, why should they care? I mean, ISIS is gone. ISIS doesn't have their emirate um, in Syria. And, you know, maybe you need to make sure that it never comes back and you can do that in, in certain ways. Um, but what is left there to be done besides rebuild or, or let the system work itself back together? Is there even anything the West can or should be doing at this point in regards to Syria? Um convince me that my Syria fatigue here is, is the wrong-headed position or, or surprise me and tell me that I'm right to, to, to not care because it's fundamentally there's nothing to be done. And this is just what happens when you have the deterioration of a state to this extent. So it's a great question. Uh, I want to put out two, two different thoughts. Uh, I approach Syria understanding that the, United, the, the withdrawal is inevitable. Uh, the United States, especially with this administration, there is not a lot of energy and attention um, allocated to Syria, and that's just a reality, um, just because it contradicts the broader goal of, you know, committing to the national defense strategy of 2018, pivoting to Russia, China, Eastern Europe, Asia Pacific. And so, you know, of course, greater engagement in Syria introduces complications into that strategy. Why did we withdraw from eight bases in Iraq? You know, if we're also calling for increased uh, commitment in Northeast Syria, I I, I understand um, how that contradicts that strategy. Uh, so I operate, you know, with that understanding in mind. Um, but at the same time, that really does not mean that the United States should not have grave concern with what is going on in Syria. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the United States shouldn't watch and be very careful with its, its existing Operation Inherent Resolve mission in the Northeast, uh, just because Syria right now, um, to put simply right now, is uh, is kind of the witch's brew of all the um, malign geopolitical developments in the Middle East. Uh, you not only have a, a regime that has killed hundreds, thousands of its people, um, you know, in, in the most hor horrific and ferocious way possible, which is, of course, then, you know, a human rights concern for the Biden administration and for the United States as a whole, based on its, you know, principles-based and morale-based foreign policy agenda. Uh, but then on top of that, you, of course, have, uh, you know, Russian forces competing there and then the wave of um, Iran-aligned militias that are now operating in the space. And I think at this point, the fate of Syria is sealed um, in favor of the Assad regime, uh, particularly, you know, in, in the West. Uh, the Northeast certainly still is kind of that last bastion, but uh, really, it, I, I'm, I don't have a lot of hope, unfortunately, for, for, for its survival, um, or at least, you know, survival without having to at least cooperate and engage with the Assad regime, um, you know, which is a very unfortunate reality, um, because I do think that eventual withdrawal of Operation Inherent Resolve. It's imminent, um, you know, although I think that there still is a bit more work to be done. Um, uh, so that being said, I think that that's why we should still care about Syria. 
because in the wake of U.S. withdrawal from the region, um, that is going to be not only an ungoverned space, but a potential um, power vacuum that will be governed by the Assad regime. Um, but if you look at, for example, it'll be a it'll be a hub for illicit economies. Um, you know, right now Syria is a huge, huge center for um, you know narcotics production of amphetamine-like drugs such as Captagon. Um, I expect that you know other drug trades, other illicit trades, will thrive there. And because of that, there's going to be overspill of violence and security um, and, and these illicit economies from the region that will affect not only the Levant, not only, you know, Jordan, Lebanon, but of course, um, you know, the Mediterranean EU countries to an extent, um, Northern Africa and the Gulf. And so I think that's why Syria, we really need to keep an eye on it um, and monitor what is going on, um, try and promote accountability where we can um, and, you know, also be very, very, very careful about the withdrawal process in the Northeast. Um, I think at this point, uh, we've made some decisions that, uh, you know, we, we cannot necessarily reverse. Um, you know, in 2019 and 2020, the withdrawals of U.S. forces there, and also the narrowed anti-ISIS mission in the Northeast, I don't think we can reverse that. Um, so knowing that that is a reality in the Northeast, I, I, but I still think that the United States should be very careful and not withdraw all of its forces at once. And of course, you know, keep its policy on the uh, Assad regime, um, you know, iron, ironclad and oppose this normalization trend between Syria and a lot of these Arab countries. This development of lawlessness is, I mean, I assume that the Assad regime is not cool with that. Um, and the, the kind of heartless question to ask is, wouldn't it just be better for Syria if the if the Assad regime or any regime reasserted control? I mean, I, it, it it seems to me that, that that Assad has no interest in in the country continuing to descend into that kind of level of lawlessness. Uh, and yes, Assad has done terrible things, and he's a noxious political leader. We can talk about his record, but he wasn't ISIS. He wasn't beheading people in the streets. Um, and if things have gotten this bad, isn't a modicum of stability a little bit better than what's coming before? Or am I being too cynical? I think that rationale certainly is pushing a lot of the, um, you know, some of its Arabs neighbor, its Arab neighbors closer to, to Syria, certainly. And I think that there is, a, ironically, a degree of economic opportunity for some of these countries, or at least they perceive it. Um, you know, I don't I don't think I'm not rationalizing it, but, um, you know, I, I think for some they're perceiving, you know, the reconstruction process as, you know, an economic gain. Um, but no, I don't think that that's that's a that's a reason to say that, you know, control from the regime is is better for Syria because the regime only benefits um, from stability when when it's in its favor and same goes for instability in ungoverned spaces for example the, there is um, you know limited evidence that the regime is involved in the captagon trade in terms of production not only just uh, you know waving it off and allowing it to you know flow through its borders they're they're actively involved in this um, and so you know you know, also looking at just, of course, their track record of how they, you know, relate to democratic reform, you know, electoral integrity, um, the safe, the basic safety of their citizens um, outside of just the Alawite community. Um, I just, I don't think that that is a good thing for Syrians, no. Um, and I think that because the war has persisted over 10 years, certainly there are contested areas but there are also areas that have, um, you know, been been cut off for quite some time, for example, like the Northeast, or that they have established this different modus vivendi and this different system of governance and rule 
um, that, uh, you know, I think will pose problems for, for uh, you know, national unity in the end. Um, and I think that places like that, um, you know, certainly deserve to be supported by the United States government um, as kind of these last bastions of, of relative freedom, relative, um, you know, security from, from the Assad regime's activities. By the Northeast, you mean the Syrian Kurds is who you're talking about. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. already sold them up the river. Um, and it's it's not Assad they have to be afraid about. It's the, the, the Turks are probably coming for them one way or another. And that geography is just not very good unless we've got an emerging Kurdish national consciousness that I miss developing. Um, their, their territory is just not particularly defensible. It's, it's not a great position to be in kind of long term. But maybe, I don't know, maybe the Kurdish national consciousness will, will finally emerge. I, I have my doubts. Yeah, no, I know. I completely agree. And also, you know, not to bring Turkey back into this, but, um, you know, it's uh, that's that's another element, too, uh, that the that the United States has has not really accounted for, um, you know, in, in this policy as well. Um, so which has because of it also pushed, um, you know, some really interesting relationships, uh, you know, between our adversaries in Syria, um, just because I don't think that we've had really much of a game plan other than the anti-ISIS coalition, which is. Um, very much on us, very much on us for not visualizing how this would affect, um, you know, security relationships. I think you're a little too kind when you say the U.S. didn't know. I'm pretty sure the U.S. knew exactly what it was doing at the time, and mm -hmm. I got in trouble for saying so at the time. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, I know that you've got an international flight to catch, and I don't want to keep you too long. So what have I not asked you about that I should have asked you about um, that is important right now or that's interesting to you? That's a good question. Um, on the subject of normalization with the Assad regime, I think that it's it's pretty clear um, where some states are, you know, their, their positions on this. Uh, for example, Egypt, Jordan, um, Iraq in some cases, um, they, they've all demonstrated some interest in engaging with the, with the Assad regime, which is, I think, very clear what the United States should do with this, which of course is, a, you know, oppose this, this trend emerging here. But um, I think that there are other processes of normalization between uh, Middle Eastern countries, for example, Turkey, Egypt, the UAE, that's been really interesting. Um, there have been some initial discussions and I mean, nothing is really uh, taken off in terms of any kind of formal agreement or deal. Uh, but that's something definitely worth watching. And somewhere I think that the United States, um, you know, would be interested in, in seeing how this would unfold. First, of course, it would, it would take effect in perhaps some commercial um, and, and you know economic deals. Um, uh, very limited uh, actions made on you know, for example, uh, you know, coordinating with trade, co coordinating with commerce. Um, but I also and investment opportunities as well. But I think that there is a potential for a security dynamic, um, which could uh, you know help the emerging emerging coalition uh, against Iran in the wake of U.S. withdrawal. And I think that that's something worth exploring for the United States and kind of mapping out different scenarios of how, you know, would it be in their interest to have a broad informal coalition um, that would, you know, oppose a lot of these proxies and these militias that are aligned with Iran in their interest? And would it be a good thing to have Turkey on board? Because certainly the Turkish-Iran, um, the Turkish-Iranian relationship is is very fraught and very interesting to 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 see um and certainly turkey cannot uh be counted as uh, a very like warm friend of 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 tehran um 
I also think that it's interesting to see the, uh, you know, Israel-Arab Gulf relationship. Uh, it seems it seems to me that there is a bit more progress uh, lately in the last few months. Things paused, of course, um, after after tensions in Gaza, uh, and uh, that will be very important to watch as well. So lots lots shifting right now politically uh, in terms of uh, new alliance systems, um, old friends trying to gauge shared interests, uh, see if there are any constraints to this. And uh, I think I think that the United States should definitely watch this to see if it if it, it will be, you know, if anything will serve their interests, particularly their security interests, as they look to draw down their presence. One can hope. Um, right. It's funny you mentioned the Iran-Turkey thing. I, I, I said to an Iranian friend of mine, I guess months ago now, that, you know, I thought that Turkey and Iran were sort of on a collision course. And he slapped me on the wrist and said, no, 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 Iran and Turkey, we're good. We're friends. Um, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it's something I think about. Um, before I let you go, just three quick hitters, um, you know, short questions, short answers sort of things. Um, number one, is Erdogan president of Turkey in 2025? No, I don't think he's, I don't think he's well enough right mm. now. I've heard that he's had some health issues recently. Spicy. Okay. Not uh, to is, say that is, I'm like, you know, the inside scoop to, you know, Erdogan's like health. Yeah, right. You heard, you heard it here first. Exclusive reporting on the Perspectives <laughs> podcast. Right. Uh, um, that's spicy. Is, is AKP in power in 2025? That's a good question. Um, I think that's still certainly they'll have, they'll have parliamentary seats, if anything, but I, it seems like a lot of Erdogan's rivals are also making some gains um, in in rival parties, such as like you know the CHP um, and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But um, I, I can't really give a definitive an- answer because that's it's very close. Um, yeah, that's why it's, but, that's why that's why yeah, they pay us yeah, the big bucks. Right? <laughs> um, good spicy take. Uh, second question: uh, Is our Iran and the U.S. back in the JCPOA by the end of 2022? I say yes. By the end of 2022. Yeah. Uh, end I of say, next year. Yeah. I say yes, but it would be a very d- different JCPOA. Hmm. I don't see I don't see any kind of revisitation of the current JCPOA right now, especially with what um, you know, or the game that Iran's playing right now in Vienna. Hmm. So there's going to be some kind of deal, but not but you don't think it's so basically we have to re- renegotiate an entire deal here in the next year and a half sort of thing. I think so. Huh. Okay. And then last but not least, um, our friend, Mr. Assad, is he in power in 2025 or is, or is he gone by then? Yes. Yeah. He'll be in power by, in, I think after 2025. Yep. I wow. think that's so. fate is very much sealed. Great. So Bashar al-Assad will be here probably as president of Syria longer than any of us will be alive at this rate. Sounds cool. Um, Caroline, thanks so much for making the time. I know that you're you're in a rush and we had some technical difficulties, but we appreciate it. And we'll have to have you back on soon. We only we only just dipped our toes into into the region. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jacob. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. 
I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.